Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I find it so exciting to reflect on the nonviolent revolutions going on all over the world, too often eclipsed by a societal obsession with war and violence. There has been a burgeoning array of techniques, methods, and successes in attaining peace and justice through nonviolent civil resistance efforts. And today's Spirit in Action guest, Michael Beer, has just released a book analyzing and organizing the rich array of these efforts in civil resistance tactics in the 21st century. Michael is director of Nonviolence International, which situates him perfectly to see the big picture and to help people and movements profit from the experiments in and experience of making a better world without violence. Michael Beer joins us today via Zoom. Michael, what a wonderful day to have you with us for Spirit in Action. Thank you. It's great to speak with you and your audience. In watching the video about the book release, I heard mention about your mother, Fran Beer, dying. And she was someone who was dear to my eyes, too, seeing her all the time at Friends General Conference gathering. And you have my condolences about that. Thank you. It's uh, sad, but it's also a great joy to have been her son and to have been connected with her so closely through my life. So it's a mixed blessing. Your sister, Jenny, what's her age relative to yours? Jenny is an older sister and is in a related field, career field of as a mediator and an expert in negotiation and cross-cultural negotiation. I interviewed her, I don't know what it was, four or five years ago or something about the mediator's handbook. The fourth edition, I think, had just come out at that point. Did she influence at all your career path? Perhaps in an unconscious way. We both grew up in a Quaker universe with parents who were deeply engaged with social justice and social change. I think we were both strongly influenced by that Quaker, and we also have Jewish heritage, and therefore we were influenced by some of the same people and institutions. There was one particular person that had a big impact on both of us, and that is Charlie Walker, who is both a leading practitioner and pioneer in nonviolent action as well as in the field of mediation. Again, my condolences about Fran and my joy. Jenny and I connect in multiple ways besides one of her best friends is Patty, who's part of Eau Claire Friends meeting as well, and folk dancing near and dear to my heart. So Jenny is just a wonderful person. So did you produce any bad apples in your family so that you actually had to have violence fighting between kids or cousins or anything? We are blessed with a family that is, relatively speaking, lovely and wonderful people and very interested in social change and and helping others across both the Jewish and the Quaker side of the family. So we don't really have bad apples. We, of course, have conflict. And conflict is and can be healthy. If there's no conflict in the world, then you're talking about human robots. So we've got plenty of conflicts, and it's quite normal, and we just don't try to hurt each other. (laughs) 
I, on the other hand, grew up with a family of 12 kids. There was more than enough violence in our system. So I became really committed to nonviolence as a way of survival. But the reason I have you here today is because both in your role in Nonviolence International and the fact that you've just released your book, Civil Resistance Tactics in the 21st Century. I just watched earlier the video of the release session. Jamila Rakib was there. I've interviewed her. There's so many people who are intersecting through this work. And I understand that very shortly, Jonathan Kutab is going to be visiting you at your house. And I interviewed him last December. It feels like the whole universe is coming together right now. How is your adrenaline level going with the release of the book? This is my first book. And so it's pretty exciting. And I'm getting a lot of attention that I kind of like most of the time. Indeed, it is lovely in one's life to have people who you admire or who mean a lot to you speak out in support or pay attention to what I'm doing. The good news about the fact that you've interviewed all these people is that, yes, there's a very dynamic nonviolence experiment going on in the world right now with nonviolent action happening in every single country of the world in many, many ways. The sad news is that the nonviolence world still is too small. It should be so big that many of us don't know each other and we <laughs> It is expanding, but there is still kind of a nonviolence universe of activists and scholars who know each other well, and that's changing. That's it's getting bigger. I wanted to start with this in a different direction. Now, we could talk about how the book is organized, the issues that went in the categorization. We could start with Gene Sharp and his foundational work that so much of this is based on. But instead, what I wanted to do is to throw out to you Examples of what I think are probably most people consider to be nonviolent tactics that have happened over the past hundred years or so. And I'd like you to tell me what category they're in off the top of your head. Sure. And as a way of introducing people to the subject matter of this book. Now, the appendix of the book is the categorizations. So I assume that's the direction you're going to be going in when I throw out these things. But I think that a lot of people don't take into account all of the different varieties of tactics that come into making a nonviolent better world. So let me just grab a couple. Okay. So along the way, I interviewed some people and this was probably on 14 years ago, someone involved in the Estonian singing revolution. Where does that fall in nonviolent tactics? That's a fantastic revolution. I love that movie. It's one of the only movies in my life where I literally started to cry in the first 30 <laughs> seconds of the documentary. I mean, it, it's, it hit me like a tsunami right away. Singing typically is something that we would talk about as something that's used to persuade or communicate to an adversary. And so we would call this a protest and appeal or a method of expression. In this case, it was quite unusual. It was an immense crowd who was singing, and they weren't just singing to communicate to the Soviets. They were also doing something that was, they want a singing culture. They wanted a, and they were actually acting out the future today. So we would also call this a creative intervention strategy because they were literally creating the culture and the society that they had had in the past and they wanted to preserve and expand. For that reason, it was more than just a communication. It was what we call prefigurative politics, where people act out the future today. 
the future that they want today. And they were risking greatly. They could have been attacked by the Soviets at any time for this vast singing experience of 50,000 people or something singing together, whatever the number was. But as you can see, sometimes tactics can do more than one thing or fall in more than one category. Sure. So it's both constructive as well as getting a message out, I suppose. Exactly. That's one of the beautiful forms of change that I've seen. Banging pans together is not what I normally would have thought of as a protest method, but it works. Well, it seems to have worked in a variety of contexts. To the best of our knowledge, we call it caserolaza, which is a Spanish word for casserole. This, to the best of our knowledge, was founded or started, invented by Chilean women in 1971 and has been taken up around the world a great deal, particularly in anti-corruption protests for some reason. This is well, uh, very uh, prominently done in Turkey to protest the corrupt government there 25 years ago, and with some significant success. It's recently been done across the population in Burma or Myanmar, where people were banging pots and pans for a number of reasons. They were banging pots and pans to symbolize their opposition to the coup d'etat. They have a tradition in which banging of pots and pans also implies that they're chasing away the bad spirits and implying that the military uh, people are the bad spirits. And then finally, that it evolved into being used at nighttime to warn the neighborhood when a police patrol or military patrol was coming. And so, again, this is a expressive kind of tactic. And clearly, interesting dynamic about it is that anybody practically can do this action. You can be a one-year-old and bang on a pot. You can be a 90-year-old and bang on a pot. You can do it from your home. You can do it from anywhere. And so one of the things we've learned from recent research in nonviolence is that those struggles that maximize participation tend to have a higher degree of success. This is a tactic which definitely has the potential to maximize participation beyond just perhaps young men that might carry guns or throw stones or go out and do a protest. This can encompass the entire population. It's interesting you mentioned that a a little kid can do it. We had a three-year-old, one of our granddaughters, staying over this past weekend, and she found a pot and a wooden spoon, and she was banging them around the house. So I think she's in training already to be a nonviolent resistor, just already. Okay, so let's go to a a different method, one that's near and dear to my heart, and that when I mentioned it to Gene Sharp back in the mid-1980s when he visited Milwaukee, war tax resistance, where does that fall? That would fall under the category of non-cooperation, refusing to do what the authorities want you to do. And it's an extremely powerful category of action. Sometimes it's called an act of omission, something you don't do. You don't pay taxes, for example. This has, again, the advantage of maximizing participation because many, many, many people can do this. And it doesn't require an able-bodied person to go out into the streets and protest. This can be many kind of adults who can do tax resistance. This has been famously done during the American Revolution, which was substantially won in the 1760s and early 1770s by nonviolent struggle and tax resistance. And it was only the war defended the liberation, but the liberation was substantially achieved even before the war started, primarily through tax resistance. It can be very powerful. It just requires generally a large sustained participation to make it work. 
Back in 2011, I was one of many, many people who headed down to Madison, Wisconsin. We marched around the Capitol and tell me what democracy looked like. This is what democracy looks like. <laughs> Enchanting. What is that when we do that kind of thing? But I guess both the protest, right. or, you know, the march, but the chant. Yeah, the marches tend to be an expression as well as the chanting. I'm a big fan of singing at protests, partly because in my experience, it's easier to sustain a repetitious set of music and song with a crowd and keep it going than it is a chant. People tire out generally faster with a chant. The challenge we have nowadays is that there are very few public singing opportunities, or at least uh, because our society and most of the other societies of the world have substantially lost our public singing culture. We've become consumers of music because we can listen to Pavarotti or Taylor Swift or whoever, these extraordinary musicians. And so why would I sing or play music? And so unfortunately, we've substantially lost our public singing culture. And this is very sad to me. There's still places where it's alive a little bit. You can find it in soccer, football stadiums. Uh, you can find it still in some of the churches, but church going is way down. And so I'm a big fan of singing at protests, but it's a lot harder to get folks to sing. And because of our very diversified culture now, there are fewer and fewer songs that everybody knows that are shared. These creative interventions are really not typically seen as nonviolent action by many people. Most people focus on the protest side of things or what we would call confrontational. But these constructive areas of protest are absolutely amazing and important and really often shape our society. Sometimes I would say that people who are doing sit-ins at the lunch counters are doing constructive work. They're creating the future society that we live in today. They had a huge impact. And the same thing with the same gender marriage movement, where people decided, well, the state's not going to allow us to marry, but we're going to get married anyway, and maybe we'll find religious groups that will marry us or create our own religious groups that will marry us. And so we see this remarkable change in our lifetimes where we now have marriage that's recognized by many religious communities, by quite a few countries. And I don't know if you heard, but on Sunday, on this weekend, there was more than 100 Catholic churches in Germany that blessed same-gender marriages. This was in response to the Pope and the Catholic Church, which had come out against same-gender marriage just a few weeks ago. And this was the Catholics' response in Germany, really amazing response. So these constructive approaches can be very, very powerful. Yeah, it's wonderful stuff. Here's an interesting one. I There was a great book, Soul and Strategy by Daniel Hunter. I interviewed him. He was organizing in Philadelphia against the casinos there. One of their tactics was they wanted to highlight, they decided that the fact that this was done behind closed doors. And so they went to the office that would have been concerned with approving this stuff and they cleaned their windows and because, you know, they're talking about they want to have transparency. Where does that fall in the categorization? That's great. Yeah, I would. It's clearly it's it's communication. It's expressing something. But in this case, they're also cleaning windows, and so you could say that it's a creative action as well, not just an expressive one, expressing their opinion. They also, I mean, it's a great book. I I'd encourage readers, viewers, to read it. It's an amazing book. It's the best. It's a mystery. It's a thriller. It's great. <laughs> it's Dan a great book. Daniel Hunter again wrote a great great book, folks.
He's a genius, an amazing genius, and wrote a great book. And he also sent a group in to investigate the state regulators for the casino industry. And they brought these giant magnifying glasses. And they were they went in to investigate and make transparent the workings of the bureaucrats. Wonderful stuff. So what about kneeling? Uh, of course, we know about kneeling at various sports games, and it's not the first time it's ever been done. But where does that fit in terms of this range of nonviolent tactics? That's great. Generally, we divide expression, which is an enormous range of human activity, expression into four categories. We talk about, in this case, expression through the medium of the human body. There are many things you can do with the human body, like kneeling. And kneeling in many cases has a religious kind of connotation in many respects, or of course, it also has unfortunately a feudalistic one where people are <laughs> kneeling to overlords. But generally speaking, it's a de-escalatory kind of an action. There are many things that people do with their body. You have recently the three-finger symbol being used in Thailand and Burma in protests there, uh, all of the Hunger Games and there are just so many ways to use the human body that have been used in protests that are lovely and new ones and being invented all the time. In my lifetime as well, Michael, there has been the protests, the attempt by the United Farm Workers to get people not buy grapes, which is a great hardship for some of us who really love grapes. But the United Farm Workers were organizing don't buy grapes. Where does that fall? That's a boycott. And boycotts have been around for quite a long time. And that would be also under the category of non-cooperation or not doing something, not buying something. And boycotts are very powerful. We know about the great boycotts and, and so many others in history. Uh, there's now boycotts going on against Myanmar beer in Burma. And I heard revenues are down 80%. This is a beer company owned by the military, which has launched the coup there. Boycotts are continuing to be used, and particularly now in an age where we have multinational corporations that are bestride the world like a colossus and don't have a lot of regulatory schemes to prevent them from running amok. It's very important that the boycott tactic be strengthened by citizens and consumers around the world to try to hold some of these multinationals in check. I'm imagining that you could possibly feel a little torn about that Myanmar beer protest since your last name is beer. I was actually looking. There must have been a protest somewhere about beer. I was going to ask you that. But now you've already answered. I, I hadn't heard about that before. <laughs> yes. In fact, my name is beer, but I don't drink it. And so uh, my <laughs> Quaker kind of Protestant American roots are such that my family doesn't really drink much alcohol. And it must have just shocked my grandparents greatly when their Quaker daughter married a man named Beer. <laughs> <laughs> so while we're talking about boycotts, I just want to say that there's also something called boycotts, or sometimes called girl cots, in which people, in a proactive way, instead of buying Myanmar beer, they will might buy Heineken beer or from a beer company that is from a country that is, is opposing the coup. So people can actually use your money to patronize those companies that are doing the right thing and that do support you. The, I think empowering consumers around the world is something that we really need to focus more on in this modern capitalist, mafia capitalist age. And uh, if we could uh, use our monies, our dollars, our euros, whatever, more intentionally and more collectively, we might be able to impact the world in positive ways. 
And folks, we are speaking with Michael Beer today. He's director for Nonviolence International, their website, nonviolenceinternational.net. What I'm doing right now, speaking with Michael, I'm running through a number of cases where I know nonviolence tactics have been used for peaceful ends, for social justice ends. And Michael's seen all of these because he just put together a book called Civil Resistance Tactics in the 21st Century. So this book helps you have an overview so you can go forward. And and maybe before I continue on to some more examples of nonviolent tactics, let's talk about what the purpose of this book is, why this book now. Well, this book is a survey of the world right now and in the last number of decades, trying to help people understand the scope of nonviolent action and civil resistance that's happened around the world. It's just an incredibly vibrant, active universe that we operate in here. Gene Sharp in 1973 put forward 198 methods of nonviolent action and nobody had updated it. I'm, I kept asking for others to update it. And nobody did. So I took it upon myself to update. And it's just been a fabulous exploration. I would really invite people to go to our database, which is tactics.nonviolenceinternational.net or read the book and just see the incredible creativity and the incredible courage in many cases of people around the world in every country. We're seeing nonviolent resistance and nonviolence and civil resistance really refers to everything that is either not elections, not legislation, or not the courts. And so everything else is kind of this grab bag of what we would call nonviolent action. It's a very exciting, vibrant universe. People tend to use it when they're marginalized from these major institutions of elections and legislation and courts, but they also use it in modern societies to influence those institutions and push those institutions. So I would encourage people to read it and realize that there's an enormous universe of nonviolence and many people who've never protested in the street and say, well, I've never done that. We'll read this book and realize, oh, wow, maybe I have done a boycott, or maybe I have done one of these activities that I didn't really think I was engaging in nonviolent action, and yet I was. <laughs> I mean, even voting for an alternative candidate, Pat Paulson, I think in 68, was it? I think he had his name for running for president of the United States. I think that falls into these categories. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll add that there. That's great. (laughs) Well, let's talk about a couple more of them. And you can also tell me that these are tactics that don't fit under this umbrella for various reasons like you just listed. So a number of us were moved and we actually were cheering for the poor Palestinians who were having houses bulldozed and so on. So sometimes people like Rachel Corey, I interviewed her aunt a number of years ago, and Rachel Corey died standing in front of a bulldozer there. But one of the things that originally caught people's attention were these little kids throwing stones, not big stones, little stones, right? So they're harassing, but maybe that doesn't fit as a nonviolent tactic, even if it's not really going to hurt anyone. Does it fit? Well, I mean, obviously, if you get to really, really tiny stones, at some point, it's not violence. It's not going to hurt somebody. But most people would characterize throwing stones to be a violent tactic and not part of the repertoire. Generally speaking, we like to think of nonviolence as Uh, explained by Barbara Deming. Barbara Deming talked about the two hands of nonviolence. The one hand that says, stop what you're doing. I'm not going to cooperate with you. 
and the other hand reaching out in love or at least respect or compassion saying i know you're a human being i'm not i don't want to destroy you i want to work with you i want to try to make this relationship work i want to live in this world with you and so those are the kind of two parameters for nonviolence being against violence on one hand and injustice and then using means that don't harm others what about efforts? Uh, because I am now almost 67 years old, that means I was alive during the 1960s. I was not an adult yet. But, you know, people went out and created communes, right? There's the farm, as it was called, in Tennessee. So you go out and create a farm and the back to the land movement, that kind of thing. Is that valid civil resistance? It depends upon context. In certain contexts, if you're just opening up a farm, okay, fine, that's just opening up a farm. But if there's some political, if there's some cultural kind of intention behind it to create a better world, to take on industrial agriculture, to set up a farm in an urban community that is food starved, to take on a culture that perhaps uh, was uh, not supportive of same gender relationships or things like this. In many contexts, these communes were a form of a cultural institution building, and we would call that creative constructive intervention in society. What about Gandhi's March to the Sea to Make Salt? It captures me. I saw the movie in the early 80s, the movie Gandhi. I was very impressed by it. Ah, I have a brilliant idea. I'm going to march to the sea to make salt. Where does that fit? That's another great example of creating the future today. People may not know, but the British taxed salt. And in India, which is a much needed commodity in a pretty hot country, and it was a tax that almost everybody paid because even the poor needed salt. So Gandhi took on this tiny little tax. And at first, the other members of the resistance were like, why are you ticking on this salt tax? But he got enormous support from the citizenry because it was onerous, even in its small amount for many of those poor people of India. And so he announced to the British ahead of time, hey, I'm going to march to the sea and I'm going to make salt from the ocean because it's everybody can make salt and you don't control it. And you're not going to tax it. And we don't want you here and we want you to leave and all that. And so he announced it ahead of time and then did this long walk to the ocean and the whole country was watching, the whole world was watching. And it was a great publicity stunt, which is a very expressive kind of thing. And then also he went to the ocean and made salt and they immediately kind of arrested him and the whole country just went bananas and started breaking the salt tax. So we would call this again, a creative, constructive intervention and a very famous one at that. Let's switch to another country, but still considered part of Asia, the Philippines. In the 80s, there was a movement. Didn't it involve yellow, right? Yes, the yellow revolution. Involved yellow. I I thought that probably what they could have done is just boycotted so no shoes could have come in. And that would have shut down because Imelda Marcos had had how many hundred pairs of shoes? Thousands. (laughs) Thousands, whatever it was. So what, what was the yellow about in terms of their protests? And they were effective. How did they do that? Yes, the Yellow Revolution indeed was uh, quite successful. It was led by the Aquino family and an opposition politician. Uh, One of the things that was done was that they invited the Fellowship of Reconciliation to come and to train the Catholic leadership and uh, civil society in nonviolent struggle. That was done by the International Fellowship of Reconciliation, including Richard Dietz, who recently just passed away. 
a great leader of, of the U.S. Fellowship of Reconciliation. And when the Aquino was killed coming off the airplane, his spouse took over the leadership of uh, Corazon Aquino, and she took over leadership. And there was a revolution against Marcos, who tried to steal the election. The people resisted, and you had nuns kneeling in front of tanks. And uh, that was it. That was it. I mean, the tanks, they, they, they couldn't go forward. And it was a dramatic revolution and, frankly, marked the beginning of a huge wave of revolutions in the late 80s and until today of nonviolent revolutions that have taken down dictators. I'm afraid that too often people think the only option out there really is violence. And so that's why this immense database of nonviolent tactics is so important because people realize I have this alternative, that alternative. And that's why Michael Beer just released this new book, Civil Resistance Tactics in the 21st Century. Michael Beer is the director for Nonviolence International, and he's with us here today for Spirit in Action. What I'm doing right now is stepping with Michael through a number of tactics that I know have been used, that I've seen some of them in my lifetime, some precede my lifetime, but they brought about change. Let's take a little side note here, Michael. Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan together, they did a study and they found out that nonviolent tactics were more often successful than violent tactics and they controlled for all these different factors. So to know that the alternatives, the tactics, the methods are out there is truly valuable in terms of getting what we want most dearly. So I wanted to hit a few more, and then we're going to come back to your book and see how this whole nonviolent tactics database is useful, used, and what the subject of the book is. So let me ask you a controversial question. I already mentioned that during the Intifada, there were kids throwing stones. And some people thought that was not quite nonviolence. What about the work of plowshares? Again, anti-nuclear <laughs> activists, some of what they did, they'd bust in and they were trying to literally turn swords into plowshares or turn nuclear bombs into plowshares, right? They were beating on the bombs or pouring their own blood on it. Does that fit as a civil resistance tactic? We include that as a civil resistance tactic and a nonviolent tactic. It is true. It's property destruction, or as they would call it, property transformation, transforming swords into plowshares. The property destruction area is complicated. It's culturally dependent and uh, situationally dependent. And so it's difficult to make broad brush claims about which kinds of property destruction are included or not. We do include this kind of property destruction. It is public property. These uh, nuclear weapons, which if they're used, will lead potentially to the extermination of humanity. They were not doing this in a way that was going to harm or didn't harm any specific person. So we include this tactic of property transformation into a more positive use than nuclear weapons, which are so horrific. And we forget about them. They're out there. We've never seen one. But within two or three hours, all life on this planet can be exterminated by the Russians or the Americans, or both combined. Yes, it's a horrible threat to the world. Folks, you are listening to Spirit in Action. My guest is Michael Beer. He's director of an organization called Nonviolence International, website nonviolenceinternational.net. And, you know, I see that net at the end. You may forget that. 
in order to make sure that you connect with the right organization, come via northernspiritradio.org. Northernspiritradio.org will link you to all of our guests of the last 16 years. And we've had a number of wonderful guests. And just recently, we've just had a great number of wonderful people, including George Lakey, who's been foundational to a lot of this kind of work. It's back in 2016, I interviewed Jamila Brakib, who is the head of Gene Sharp's organization, Albert Einstein Institute, it's called. And just last December, I interviewed Jonathan Kitab, who is one of the co-founders of Nonviolence International and also the Palestinian Center for the Study of Nonviolence. The point is that on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, I've got interviews with these people going back 15 years, and you can listen to them. What they've had to say then is good now for the most part. It's worth listening to any of them. You can find links to their websites and how to get a hold of them because they're all invaluable resources. And just recently, there was the release of Michael Beer's book, Civil Resistance Tactics in the 21st Century, which included several of these people. And folks, I have a link to that book release. It's an hour and a quarter or so of wonderful, inspirational people and actions and thoughts. And uh, it's well worth listening to in its entirety. That link is on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. You can rate this program, all those other interviews I've done, connect to them. You can also make a donation. That's how Northern Spirit Radio is supported. Please support us, but remember especially to support the local community radio stations like the 42-some stations across the U.S. that carry Northern Spirit Radio programming. We need an alternative voice in our community because the large corporate forces of media so limit what our options are. So please go to your local station, support them, and for art and for music and for thought, it's all very important important to support those community radio stations. Remember also to go to nonviolenceinternational.net. If you put a tactics.nonviolenceinternational.net, you'll access the nonviolent tactics database. And I'm working up to that. We'll be there in just a moment. But first, I've got a couple more cases that I would like Michael Beer to weigh in on to see where they fall in terms of nonviolent tactics, or if they fall outside of that purview. One of them is suicide. Norman Morrison, in the early days, from most people's point of view, of what we call the Vietnam War, he suicided in front of the Pentagon. He had his child, his toddler with him, and he suicided right there in protest of the Vietnam War. I did interview his wife, Ann Morrison Welsh, about that. Does suicide, like what Norman Morrison did or what Buddhist monks did in Southeast Asia, does that come as a civil resistance tactic? It's certainly used a lot. We don't include it in our nonviolent database, but it's clearly been powerful, used in a lot of movements. It's not violence against somebody else, but it is violence against one's own body and one's oneself. I recently read about the suicides of two religious Christian pastors in East Germany in 1978, which I didn't know about before, and that dramatically shocked the communist government and the church. And some very important change happened because of those suicides where the church actually got some independence. And then the Lutheran Church in East Germany was such a major institution that 
providing protection for the peace, ecological feminist and other movements that then led to the, the falling of the Berlin Wall and the unification of Germany. So there's no question that suicide has, in a number of contexts, been very powerful, but it's violent and it's not something that we want to be in the business of promoting. But we do want to be respectful that a variety of different cultures and conflicts have had this happen and talk about it in the book. What about actions like outing someone? Back in the 1980s, I think this became popular. Someone's gay and is voting on a law or supporting a political party, which is opposing the rights of gays. And so people say, hey, he's gay. He he had this sex with a man. So is that a nonviolent tactic? Is that, does that fit as civil resistance? Generally speaking, the answer is yes, but there are lots of provisos. And in this case, well, there are many cases, but there's a lot of controversy around that idea in terms of what we people call violating people's privacy. This is a situation in which the person is not physically harmed, but the person, some people could say, would be psychologically harmed. And that's a tricky area to know in advance in what particular context would be violent or not. Certainly, there were in the 1980s, amidst an AIDS epidemic in which so many people were dying and in which uh, gay men in particular were vilified by various politicians, there was a strong justification by particularly lesbian gay activists and their allies to out people who are being publicly hypocritical about it. Where there was more opposition, uh, universal opposition, is out in people who otherwise were wanting it to be private and were not speaking out about the issue, but at least weren't taking a hostile approach to gay, lesbian, bisexual people. We have a similar phenomenon now happening with the internet with doxing, which is a form of outing where you out somebody, their documents, their home phone number, their, in some cases, social security number, their medical records. I mean, they can variety of different kinds of things. Some of these techniques in many cases are psychologically violent. In other cases, they can be justified in our good. So that, again, is a controversial. We do include it, but in many cases, it is violent. I want to hit just a couple more, and then I'm going to talk about the overarching issues that go into writing civil resistance tactics of the 21st century and in constructing the nonviolent tactics database. Here's one that I found very interesting for various reasons, and sometimes in protest reasons. People create alternative money, alternative ways of paying for things. As a war tax resistor, certainly there has been a temptation. I don't want to have income that the government will then want to take a portion of to support the war machine. Therefore, you know, whether it's by trade or whether it's by some other kind of piece of paper bucks, is that a nonviolent civil resistance tactic? And where does it land? That's definitely a nonviolent tactic that's used as a constructive alternative to the current government. In fact, I'll give you some inside scoop, and that is that the alternative government in Burma is looking at creating a blockchain cryptocurrency that could be used as an alternative to the current military money. So blockchain is a new technology that is being used for cryptocurrency, but it has a very big downside, which is that it consumes enormous amounts of energy. 
So one of the interesting alternatives to blockchain is Holochain, which is started by a, a Quaker guy in a Quaker intentional village in New York who is inventing an alternative internet beyond just an alternative currency. And this does not use the enormous energy that the blockchain does. So this area of alternative currency is a very exciting one, and we hope it will lead to a better world. So we'll see. So that's another technique that's used. I could go on because I've observed a lot of social change in my life, but I imagine that there's some that I've missed that should have been obvious. I mean, obviously I've been to demonstrations and people have carried signs and that's a knee jerk way of going about it. But there's some wonderfully creative and I think often effective techniques that people haven't heard of. Any that pop to mind right away for you, just the glaring omissions on what I just asked you about? Oh, well, there's just so much going on around the world. It's very exciting to watch all the creative things. And look at Hong Kong, where they were very creative with their techniques. They did human chains across the city using umbrellas to protect themselves from tear gas and water cannon, but also sending a, a kind of a signal for democracy. There's been a strong use of international third-party nonviolence now. So you have peace brigades and international solidarity movement and Christian peacemaker teams and others using nonviolence as a third person, as a third party to go into a conflict to try to help protect people or help protect human rights defenders from the human rights world, which has been very creative in its tactics uh, since the 1970s. There's something called guerrilla lawyering, where people broke into detention centers by saying that they were undocumented immigrants, said, arrest me, arrest me. And they got arrested, even though they weren't illegal or undocumented. And they got arrested. They went in and they provided all kinds of legal services to the other to the other inmates, people trying to breaking into jail, which there are a number of examples of this. The extraordinary creativity of the people. You can see the people in Belarus recently have been struggling against their dictator using a variety of techniques, the symbol of the flip-flop because there Lukashenko has, has been associated with a cockroach. And so you, you bang a cockroach for the flip-flop. Maybe that's not very nonviolent, but to, to the cockroaches. But the people of Belarus are really standing up. You're seeing women in particular around the world really playing such a leadership role, continue to, and in this modern age, in a lot of nonviolent movements, which is very exciting. I would tell people that there's a lot that listeners can do. You can obviously give money to social change groups like Nonviolence International or other groups that are training people in nonviolence. You can give it to the causes themselves, 350.org or Black Lives Matter, the Dreamers, or you can actually get involved in a campaign yourself. And I would encourage people not just to think in terms of going to a protest or getting involved in a boycott, but find a cause that you believe in, a small one. It could be just the one in your community. Get onto the committee of a local campaign. It's sustained work with people, not just a tactic here, tactic there, that really brings change. So I would implore people, if you are not invested in one campaign at the moment, find one and always try to be invested at least in one campaign of social change rather than just being a spectator, because nonviolence is not a spectator sport and democracy is not a spectator sport. And yes, these are very cliche kind of things we all hear, but I implore you to get involved at a level that you feel comfortable, find a group and really focus on a campaign. Campaigns often last six months to a couple of years. So it's a time commitment. And there's so many ways to do it. Let me just hit one or two more, and then we're going to analyze a little bit underneath it. What about in the 1960s where women would go braless? 
This was a start of women's rights of sorts. Yes. Does that have a category for it? Well, yes. I mean, we have a category of basically clothes, people wearing different kinds of clothes or not wearing different kinds of clothes. I guess not wearing would be almost an act of omission. So that's kind of unusual. Certainly people, and particularly women taking off their clothes has been, or disrobing has been a very powerful technique that's used. Men are, in many parts of the world, are really hardwired to react to women's naked bodies. And so they can't help themselves but notice and react. So women who use this in particular know that they're manipulating men's psychological training and systems to get attention for their causes. The Ukrainian feminine movement used this. The Liberians used this in their peace movement to end the dictatorship in Liberia. There's just lots of examples of people using clothing or disrobing to get attention or to send a message and a signal. Here's an interesting one. I think it it would fall into the purview of civil resistance. There's a song by Charlie King. I don't know if you happen to know his music, but he has a song called My Name Joe that he performs. Joe is working in a kitchen. He's an illegal alien, as these things are termed. The owner gets upset with him, so he calls INS. INS is supposed to come to the kitchen at this big restaurant and grab Joe. And since he's from Thailand, I imagine his name wasn't Joe growing up. But anyway, INS shows up and everybody working in the kitchen says, my name, Joe, my name, Joe, my name, Joe. That's civil resistance, isn't it? And where does it land? That is great. That's a great example of disguised disobedience. They don't know whether people are being truthful or not. (laughs) And so this disguised disobedience or disguised non-obedience, it's a wonderful tactic. This is often used when we go to jail and people call themselves Jane Doe. A lot of pro-choice protests, women go to jail and say the name is Jane Doe. Uh, So this is is a, a great one. Well, where I want to direct people now is toward the Nonviolent Tactics database. And again, you'll get a good overview of this. You'll see the outline of it if you read Michael Beer's book, Civil Resistance Tactics in the 21st Century. And Michael Beer is director of Nonviolence International. Nonviolenceinternational.net is their website. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org. The Tactics Database in the recent book release webinar, we got walked through how to access this database. Give us the conceptual overview of how the database is organized. Where does it start? The big categories, subcategories. It's complex thing is each of these tactics I've mentioned, you said, well, part of it's here, part of it's here. So it's not easy. Well, right. I mean, honestly, the categories are something that maybe make me happy and might be useful to people, but you can categorize human activity in so many different ways. We try to come up with a scheme to categorize this enormous field of action by what people say, by what people do, and by what people don't do. And then we said people can do this in positive ways and negative ways, or constructive ways and confrontational ways. So it's a very, very broad categories with lots of leakage, and there are lots of actions that often do two things at the same time. So we try to put things in categories just so that people can embrace the vast number 
number of actions and tactics in a way that can at least make a little bit of sense so that it's not completely overwhelming. But it's a lot of fun. It's like going through a Wikipedia page. You go look at a tactic and in the tactic, you can see a photograph and then you can see a description of it. And then you can see some examples of it where we have a short write-up. And if you want to go to the original article that we took it from, you can actually get a link and go back in the Wayback Machine on the internet and find the original article for that action. And so it's really a place where you can browse and see what other actions are similar. We're hoping in the future, if we can get enough support, we hope people in the audience will be excited about the fact that there's a global database of tactics that needs to be added to and will continue to grow. We would love to add how-to videos to many of these tactics. We would love to add some more commentary about common pitfalls or ways in which these could be used in campaigns or sequence in campaigns to meet goals. There's a lot that could be done with this. We've done this almost all on volunteer money and time and would love more support if people want to get involved and help build the database. There are just many ways that we can do this together. And together, it will be a shared resource for the world of 7.7 billion people on alternatives to violence and ways that people can meet their needs potentially that they didn't know about before. Even though the nonviolent tactics database that Nonviolence International has produced is wonderful, there are a number of other databases out there in the world. And you mentioned some of them. You linked to them, too, through your book. So, for instance, one I'm aware of is the one that George Lakey has been involved in. It's at Swarthmore. How does your database compare to something like that? The Swarthmore Nonviolent Action Global Database is one that's focused on campaigns, And they've come up now, they're at least at 1,500 campaigns around the world. And they mention in there the various kinds of tactics and methods that are used in those campaigns. So that is a a very, very impressive database that we invite people to use. They have campaigns from all over the world. And so it's a much more ambitious, in some ways, database than ours, which just focuses on tactics. So that's how we divide up the work. We've come up with a whole lot more tactics than they've been aware of in their campaigns. And so we're hoping that they will use now and add to their repertoire of tactics that they can include in cataloging their campaigns. There are other databases out there in the world, but I would say that the New Tactics in Human Rights is another really interesting database. The Human Rights Movement got started in the 1970s. It's a slightly different frame from nonviolent action. It makes use of the court system and legislation uh, much more directly. And obviously with Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and all the human rights defenders around the world, it's really had a very powerful impact. And many people in the world call themselves human rights defenders before they'll call themselves a nonviolent activist. And so this frame is very powerful, and the new tactics in human rights has all kinds of tactics, some of which are more institutionalized than ours, but of which there's a lot of overlap with nonviolent action. And I encourage people also go to that database for learning and inspiration. Is there a reason that one should maybe be specially motivated to step beyond the everyday way of trying to influence, you know, you write to your legislator or, you know, maybe you just buy a product typically just to try and support them to step beyond that to something that would be called a civil resistance tactic. How important is this? How much done is it? I think it's vital. Frankly, if we just think that the only change that's going to happen is by petitioning our elected officials and hoping that the court judges do the right thing around the world, we're not going to get all the change that we need for our societies. 
we got climate change. We can't rely on the politicians and the court system to do all the work and the top-down solutions. We need to be involved in bottom-up solutions, many of them which are constructive. They're disruptive in a way, but they're constructive in their intent. And I would strongly encourage people to think about building power from their local community up. I mean, we've mentioned a lot of movements that are very grandiose and big, but there are lots of things that can be done in your community around climate. The things that can be done in your community to fight white supremacy or uh, to get rid of the vestiges of the caste system. You know, what if the name of your road is uh, named after a slaveholder? Why don't you change the name of your street? You have to petition the city council or the mayor or the county for that. Just go and change the name on the on the sign, <laughs> you know, and, and mobilize people. I mean, go on a campaign and get rid of the lawns in your neighborhood because lawns are destroy, helping destroy the ecology of the planet and get people to plant something other than, than lawns. I'm not suggesting you go and burn up their lawns. But be willing to take on people's assumptions, to be disruptive in various kinds of ways, and do it collectively. You don't have to be a hero. You don't have to be some of the one of these big martyrs or suffer an enormous amount. Find people to work with. Find a campaign that means something to you. And you'll find at points what disruptive activity or direct action really should be part of your campaign and really can make a difference for your community. There was one last thing that I was concerned about in the release of your book. And when I, I looked through the goals of the book, the education, the inspire, promote action, scholarly understanding, new resources, I was good with all of that. But there's one thing that you didn't specifically mention that you probably understood it to be there. But I thought it was very important to say we want people's actions to be more effective. So it's not just have the knowledge, but it's like, okay, yeah, you could do this, you could do this. True. And we want it to be more effective. And I, is there any kind of rating? Is there any kind of way that we can understand? I, I realize every context is different. So it's not easy to assign effectiveness. It is hard. And sometimes the effectiveness, you don't see it apparently. And then, you know, a year later, boom, there's a big change. And you're like, oh, wow, we didn't realize we had an impact. And then you do have an impact. So it's true. We didn't specify that. We'd like our database to move in that direction of increasing people's effectiveness by doing how-to videos and booklets, by describing pitfalls, common pitfalls of these tactics and ways in which these tactics commonly succeed. So that's the next phase, really focusing on helping people use these tactics more effectively. And folks, we've just scratched the surface. The book that Michael Beer just released is called Civil Resistance Tactics in the 21st Century. The website for the organization of which he's director, Nonviolence International, is nonviolenceinternational.net. And the Nonviolent Tactics database itself is tactics.nonviolenceinternational.net. Michael Beer has been a great force for nonviolent alternatives, for civil resistance, as it's known. There's so many wonderful people who are involved in bringing the energy together that is transforming so many countries in the world. Thank you, Michael, for being part of that energy and for joining me here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you. We'll have links to all of the sites, to Nonviolence International, to ICNC, the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, who published the book for Michael, to George Lakey and to the Swarthmore Nonviolence Database, 
to Jamila Rakib at the Albert Einstein Institute. All of those links are going to be on northernspiritradio.org. And we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.